Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And eliminating emissions from the atmosphere in time to keep global temperature rise to safe levels is more urgent than ever. Already scientists tell us the planet has warmed by on average one degree Celsius and no one likes the effects of that so far. So what will it take to contain warming to one and a half degrees or below two degrees, which is the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement? Can we do it with technologies we have at hand today or will new and novel approaches be needed? A, a film exploring grand solutions like geoengineering and large-scale modifications of the Earth's atmosphere is screening at the Transitions Film Festival. It's called Global Global Thermostat and it's been presented by the UN Association of Australia and their national coordinator, co-coordinator of the Climate Change Program is Graham Hunter and he's going to be part of a panel discussion after that screening of Global Thermostat and it's uh, great to have you with us, Graham. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And um, before we go into the sort of pros and cons, I suppose, of the various geoengineering solutions that this film explores, can you kind of give us a an overview of what we're referring to when we talk about geoengineering and I suppose the scale that we're talking about with some of these solutions? Yes, well, this is, you referred to the film, which is which is quite confronting because what it points out is that in a sense, no matter what we now do to um, reduce our emissions of, of greenhouse gases and carbon dioxide, the build-up of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is, is, is already too high and is going to grow. So, so the, the focus here then is, well, if there is too much in the atmosphere, how do we then go about uh, stopping, in some ways, more getting in uh, other than just by cutting emissions? And how do we actually suck it out? Of the atmosphere, so um, there are there are in a sense two key areas that's been looked at here, in under the heading of geoengineering. One is reflecting sunlight uh, to have less sun actually hitting the earth, and the other is actually removing the carbon dioxide itself from the atmosphere. Um, if we have a sense of the size, in the, the total emissions of greenhouse gases now are about uh, 50 to 60 um, billion tonnes a year. Massive. So it's that sort of dimension that we have to keep in mind when we're looking at ways in which we're actually going to take that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And so we hear a lot at the policy level in Australia about the need to, you know, have um, very strict and ambitious emissions reductions targets, which of course we don't have at this stage in, in order to try and keep global warming within that 1.5 um, degrees Celsius cap. But we hear less about these technologies and kind of geoengineering. How important are they to the broader challenge of addressing climate change, along with, of course, uh, transitioning our energy system from kind of, you know, coal-focused to renewables and so on? It, it, it now appears that they'll be essential. Um, but, of if, if course, you know, part of the reluctance of talking too much about them is to sort of imply that we therefore don't have to do so much about actually reducing emissions in the first place. Um, and that, as we look at the sort of costs and the techniques required to remove carbon dioxide, 
um, is is could could be quite misleading. Um, above all, above all, we have to do as much as we can to reduce those emissions. Given that, we need this fallback that's now being uh, looked at. Uh, at around the world in various research institutes. And I mean, another fallback, I suppose, that we know works to a degree, which is, you know, planting of forests and also, you know, um, trapping carbon in, in soils. And these aren't being necessarily called geoengineering, but um, I learned from the Global Thermostat film that the scale of planting required to do the job that some of these other technologies could do are enormous um, and raise other issues with regards to you know monocrops impacting on food productive areas and and so forth but do you think that some of the kind of known solutions right now might do the the drawdown or the carbon drawdown job that some of these other new ones are being proposed for Yes, yes, and cer certainly trees and reforestation has, has been a focus and will continue to be a major focus. As you say, if uh, one does the arithmetic as to just how much would be required to do the level of drawdown that might be necessary, then the area of land is just quite, quite enormous. So the, uh, the, the planting of trees, reforestation, uh, changes to farming practices, those type of land-based activities are going to be an essential component that of themselves are unlikely to be sufficient. And there are quite a few proposals and, and initiatives um, canvassed in this documentary, um, some of which kind of raise concerns about potential risks and, and just how much is known about what might happen if, if these are um, kind of released and, and seen through on a grander scale. One, for example, is a process of carbon mineralisation where uh, carbon dioxide is kind of stored in subterranean rocks, which the film um, shows is being implemented in Iceland. Another one, ocean fertilisation, which seems on, on the basis of evidence in the film to be quite risky in in terms of potentially upsetting the ecosystem. How much do we know about some of these processes and what might happen if they were implemented on kind of a grand scale? Yeah, we're, just, we're just starting to, to learn about them and that's the, the issue is having sufficient information to then make decisions about what can and cannot be done. With respect to the, the carbon capture and storage, which is where the carbon dioxide is pumped underground and then uh, captured by the materials underground, there's a substantial amount of work going on around the world. To some extent, it's being used in, in a commercial way, but in a very limited way. And so that itself demands considerably more research. With respect to your other comment, which is the one that's referred to as ocean fertilisation, um, that had a, a lot some years ago, a, a lot of um, uh, positive uh, ideas around it. It has to do with um, putting things like uh, iron filings, massive amounts of iron filings, into the ocean to sort of stimulate the growth of, of algae and others that actually then absorb the carbon dioxide and sink to the bottom. Um, but there was such reservation about the side effects of that that in fact further further research into that has now been has now been banned. Um, so I think we're probably going to be facing that type of issue for a number of these techniques as we look at just how they might be applied at the sort of magnitude that might be required. 
and I mean some of the others that were explored and there's quite a number in this documentary actually is to make sort of ocean clouds brighter so they're more reflective and even one where a big kind of sun shield is is put into orbit to filter the amount of sun actually hitting the earth at all and I suppose um on one, you can see how it can capture the imaginations of some, but also alarm many others. Yes, so there's, there's a range of techniques that essentially are to do with trying to reflect the sunlight um, back. So it meant, means that, uh, that less sunlight is hitting the Earth, which of course itself has certain consequences. But those sort of techniques include such things as um, injecting uh, vast amounts of sulphur particles into the stratosphere or having uh, balloons or mirrors um, up uh, that would be large reflectors of the sunlight. Some people have suggested um, actually soot particles um, that would then uh, filter the sun. And as you say, there's also been a suggestion to improve the reflection of sunlight from ice. Um, the, these are all possibilities, but generally um, the implications and the side effects and the unknown aspects of them have tended to move the focus away from that type to the uh, actual removal of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The other point, of course, with those systems that are just looking at reflecting sunlight is that the carbon dioxide can still then build up even though the effect may not be immediate on the ground, so that if these systems then break down, there's the danger of a large amount of carbon dioxide uh, coming down to the lower atmosphere. So I think they're generally being set aside in focus of the actual systems removing carbon dioxide. We're speaking with Graham Hunter, National Co-Coordinator of the Climate Change Program at the United, Na United Nations Association of Australia. He's appearing on a panel discussion following a screening of the film Global Thermostat at the Transitions Film Festival tomorrow night. And um, there are, of course, uh, commercial businesses operating in this Base. And in the film, there's the process of direct air capture, which um, a number of companies around the world are engaging in, where carbon dioxide in the atmosphere can be kind of captured and then used and on-sold as an energy source. What's the role of these sorts of, sorts of commercial operatives in um, these geoengineering types of initiatives? Yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting aspect, isn't it, where there is actual sort of research into these techniques, both through government organisations as well as through private. Um, but private organisations, of course, are looking for uh, the opportunity to um, commercialise um, and, and to patent. And so the questions then arise, if that is the case, to what extent might these techniques be used more widely or are they constrained by the, uh, the, the uh, private ownership? That's one of the issues that uh, still needs to be uh, determined. And there's no, at this stage, international body that's actually considering the, the overall, um, if you like, rolling out of these techniques in some sort of systematic way. I mean, many people, and, and it was explored somewhat in, in the documentary, consider focus on these kind of larger scale drawdown type technologies as a distraction versus spending um, the amount of time and investment that we have at hand on eliminating emissions from the source. What's your view of that balance? 
Yeah, I, I can un- understand that reservation uh, and any sort of sense that we should um, in some way relax on the re- reducing our emissions is, is obviously um, very counterproductive. Um, the world still needs to do more, and that's what the United Nations, um, there's a major conference in Glasgow at the end of this year, is seeking countries to increase their commitments to reducing emissions. That's quite a a vital and critical time. Um, Having said that, um, even if the countries can achieve what they're aiming to do, and even more, there still is the likelihood of the excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So I think it's, it's appropriate that this type of research be developed. Um, it needs to be developed to the point where there's an understanding of these techniques sufficient to make some sort of decisions about which might be appropriate and which may not, um, at least there so that we know about it. I don't think um, we can sort of say, well, because we're ignorant, therefore we shouldn't do it. Yeah, interesting. And I mean, we are we know we're about to get uh, a technology investment roadmap from our federal government. Would you expect that sort of novel solutions like the ones explored in this documentary would form part of, I think they're looking at 100 technologies or um, would governments, I suppose, around the world be more likely to invest in known tried and true type technologies? I, um, I, I would, I would, would, it, would assume that um, within the, if you like, the tried technologies, the whole question we've already mentioned of sort of trees and reforestation will be very much part of it, uh, and uh, and farming in a way that, that captures and contains the carbon. The carbon. Um, I would be surprised if it ventured into some of these more uh, extensive approaches. But um, it'd be most interesting to see. I wonder also, Graham, about the coordination that can happen through the UN um, for kind of international cooperation, given that many of these initiatives that are canvassed in the film involve, uh, you know, I mean, for example, processing or capturing and processing carbon that comes from places other than just within, of course, the, the national borders. How important is that international coordination if and when some of these technologies are kind of ramped up? Yeah, it's going to be critical, Dylan. Um, as you say, what what is being discussed uh, covers uh, can cover a number of borders. Uh, the techniques have implications worldwide. Uh, there would be a need to be an understanding of what would be the cumulative effect of all the techniques. Um, so some sort of coordination of that nature would be absolutely critical. The, the other element that uh, we haven't talked about so much is having removed the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, it then needs to be stored somewhere. And uh, and that also can have major implications for the way in which different countries have to interact and cooperate. Well, it's a really fascinating idea and I suppose we um, need to keep our, our minds open. But uh, as the film itself, um, Global Thermostat, points out, we don't have much time um, to spend, um, ex- uh, you know, thinking about it. We actually need to get on and, and do the emissions elimination as well. So, um, But enjoy the panel. Um, Graham Hunter is National Co-Coordinator of the Climate Change Program over at the UN Association of Australia, speaking as a panel member um, after the screening of Global Thermostat tomorrow night as part of the Transitions Film Festival. And thanks so much for joining us on Triple R, Graham. It's a pleasure. Triple R. 
A couple of weeks back, the elections in Ireland delivered an unprecedented result as the left-wing nationalist party, Sinn Féin, which has historic links to the provisional Irish Republican army, won the highest share of the popular vote, with 24.5%. But that only translates to 37 seats in Ireland's lower house, where a majority of 80 is required to form government. There's now a power struggle underway as the centre-right-wing duopoly of Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle stand in the way of Sinn Féin forming a workable coalition. This all comes, of course, right after Britain's historic exit from the EU, which was precipitated by a lot of concern around the management of the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, an area of much historical contestation. To help us understand what this all means, we're joined by Mary C. Murphy. She's the Jean Monnet Chair in European Integration and a lecturer in politics at University College Cork. Mary, thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R. Hi there. And so we don't often in Australia hear about the minutiae of the politics uh, happening in Ireland, but there has been quite a bit of interest in these particular results. What's it been like over there for, for you, I guess, as a researcher and, and someone who lives in Ireland? Well, it's been an extraordinary few weeks, really. Um, You talked there about Sinn Féin and the rise of Sinn Féin during this election. That was quite unprecedented and uh, very unexpected, even by Sinn Féin themselves. Uh, Such is the nature of the electoral system here in Ireland that had the party run more candidates, it would have won more seats. So there really has been a shift in terms of voter preferences here in Ireland towards a political party which had traditionally been at the very margins of the Irish political system. So what we're witnessing is very, very interesting and very intriguing and potentially may have very long term consequences for the Irish state. And it has to be said that around the world, polls, political polling ahead of elections haven't really told us what's going to happen at elections um, in many different countries. Uh, Have the polls failed here or is it really just one of these kind of left field events that no one could have seen coming? That's an interesting question. Um, The polls were demonstrating increasing support for Sinn Féin as the election campaign went on, but it was really the exit poll on the night of the election itself which gave us a very clear and emphatic picture of how well Sinn Féin was doing. So the polls were certainly capturing some of it, but nevertheless what happened on election day I think did catch most political commentators and the political parties themselves by surprise. And to help us understand that, Mary, can you kind of set the scene, I guess, of of the way that politics in Ireland has operated for the past decades? I understand Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael have kind of existed as a centre-right um, kind of duopoly of sorts for some time with Sinn Féin kind of at the margins. Can you speak to that proposition and, and I guess, set the scene for why this was such an unprecedented result? Yeah, sure. Ireland is often conceived as a slightly unusual political system when you compare it to the rest um, to the rest of Europe. And that's largely because we have always had a very, very small left wing movement or left wing presence within the broader political system. It really has been dominated by two rather unusual political parties, and that's Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Fine Gael is the party which has been leading a minority led government up to this most recent election. But Fianna Fáil has traditionally been the largest party in the Irish political system. Um, And it was dominant for decades after the creation of the state in the 1920s. That party took a major hit during the period of the global economic crisis because it was seen as having been in some way responsible for the way in which that was felt here in Ireland. And Fine Gael then became uh, a 
party in the ascendant. But both parties are situated at the centre or slightly to the centre right of um, the political spectrum. And it is those two political parties which have really swapped power down through the years here in Ireland. Sinn Féin was always at the margins. Its, it's appeal has been growing in recent years and to a certain extent much of that has been prompted by the peace process in Northern Ireland. Sinn Féin is a political party which also has a presence in Northern Ireland. And as that party began to move towards the mainstream, as it began to reject violence from the 1990s onwards, its electoral appeal became more obvious. And we're now at a point where Sinn Féin on both sides of the border in Ireland are emerging as a very, very significant political force. And they're also a political party which has left-wing credentials. So that marks an additional change as well. So what we're witnessing here in Ireland really is some quite transformative political change. And um, before we get into some more detail about about that and some of the bread and butter sort of issues that seem to be at play here, has Sinn Féin sort of won seats e- evenly from the other two parties or has it been from one or the other that they've taken the most seats? Uh, they've probably taken seats from Fianna Fáil slightly more so. But to be perfectly frank, it looks like they've taken seats across the board from uh, not just from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, but some of the other smaller parties, like, for example, the Labour Party, which is also to the left of the political spectrum here in Ireland. Um, but I suppose the best way, I guess, to try and understand what's happened is that people on the whole appear to have been opting for political parties, even the smaller ones, which are to the left of the political spectrum. And that has impacted quite significantly on those two larger centre-right parties. And so why has that happened, Mary? I mean, what sorts of issues do you think people who have voted for Sinn Féin this time around have prioritised in, in their choice? Well, it's very clear there were two major policy issues during this election campaign. One was health and the other perhaps even more significantly was that housing. There is a housing crisis here in Ireland in terms of availability of housing and also in terms of the cost of purchasing a house and the cost of rent as well. Um, And we have a, a very large number of people now on what's called the homeless list who are relying on the state um, in terms of in terms of shelter. And that's been a problem that has been growing over recent years. And it's one which really hasn't been confronted in any meaningful or effective way uh, by the existing government. Um, and Sinn Féin has been able to capitalise on that. They have tapped into all, um, all of, I guess, the, the discontent there is around um, a, a very, very severe crisis that is, is felt in a very real way by people. And I think in many ways what this reflects is that actually the sort of the outplaying of the global economic crisis here in Ireland, which happened in 2008 or thereabouts, that the people are now beginning to react to that uh, much more emphatically than they did back in 2008, because many of the problems that emerged during that period, like the beginnings of the housing crisis, just haven't been tackled successfully in the intervening period. And Sinn Féin was very, very successful in selling a message around housing policy with prescriptions for solving that particular problem. And uh, people were were attendant and they were receptive to that message. 
We're speaking with Mary C. Murphy, the Jean Monnet Chair in European Integration and lecturer in politics at University College Cork, all about the recent elections in Ireland and still there's not a government settled and we're chatting about all the implications of this and, and where it might have come from. We've seen around the world in various examples, Mary, where voter disaffection and um, I guess uh, wide kind of gaps in, in inequality and that kind of thing has been harnessed by populist parties off the back of kind of an exclusionary nationalist type agenda. Have those forces been at all at play in Ireland, given there's been, you know, issues around healthcare, housing affordability and so on? I think some of the um, suggestions around Sinn Féin being a classical populist party um, just simply don't stack up. Sinn Féin certainly has a very strong nationalist agenda. It is a political party which wishes to see the island of Ireland uh, reunited. In other words, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland become a single state. And that really is at the centre of Sinn Féin's policy platform. But there are other aspects uh, of Sinn Féin which don't necessarily fit the populist category. Uh, Although they do talk to some extent about there being a clash between the elite and the people, it really is underplayed somewhat. Um, and in other ways as well, in terms of their attitude to the European Union, for example, they're not a strongly Eurosceptic party, which is something we typically see with uh, with populism as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's really not entirely accurate to suggest that Sinn Féin is an example of that populist surge that we've seen in, in other parts of Europe. And I think it's most, most significantly felt in terms of the party's attitude towards immigration. It's not an anti-immigration party in the way that many populist parties across the rest of Europe are. In fact, it's a party which, to which to a large extent um, welcomes immigration and has never tried to exploit an anti-immigrant narrative um, at any point during its history. Yeah. So there are very distinct differences between Sinn Féin and other populist movements. Yeah, I think it's what makes this election particularly interesting, the fact that it doesn't fit that narrative that's been applied to, you know, elections in the United States and and the referendum on Brexit, for example, where, um, you know, people have suggested that populist um, leaders have have harnessed that kind of disaffection for ends that don't necessarily, um, you know, meet the needs of wide sections of the population. Do you have much of a sense of whether Brexit played a role at all or is playing a role in the changing dynamics of politics uh, in the Republic, Republic of Ireland? That's a really good question. Um, one of the things that we, we know about this election campaign is that Brexit did not feature as an issue of any real substance at all. And in fact, the, the exit poll data on election day demonstrated that for only 1% of voters the management of Brexit uh, was an actual issue. Issues around housing and health were much, much more significant for Irish voters. And that reflects the fact that across the political spectrum and across the party system here in Ireland, all of the individual parties share a consensus about how the Irish state should approach Brexit. So there's no point of contestation between the parties on the management of them, of that very, very challenging issue. But nevertheless, the shadow of Brexit, I guess, um, is cast over this particular election campaign and over um, over Irish politics for the last few years. Brexit really has unsettled relationships in Northern Ireland and also to a certain extent between North and South, but also between Britain and Ireland. 
And what Brexit did was it repoliticized the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And that was an argument that to a large extent had been settled by the peace process and the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. But what Brexit did was it is it upended that uh, consensus which had been reached between the different communities in Northern Ireland about that about that border. Um, so 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 Brexit to a certain extent has fueled support for Sinn Féin's campaign towards Irish unity because it has allowed Sinn Féin to suggest that there is substantial logic in Northern Ireland looking to the prospect of Irish unity as a means of staying in the European Union in the longer term. So it has allowed Sinn Féin to develop its policy platform in relation to Irish unity. And in the event that Sinn Féin find themselves at the government table in the next few weeks, we will probably see Sinn Féin pushing the Irish unity agenda in ways that really would have been unprecedented before Brexit. And that is fascinating. And I mean, from where you sit, how might that play out? Well, in their manifesto, um, Sinn Féin talked about having what's called a border poll, in other words, a referendum on Irish unity within the next number of years. And they also talk um, very clearly about preparing and planning for the prospect of Irish unity. So putting in place plans in relation to, for example, gathering research and data, allowing people to express opinions, um, creating some sort of um, consultative forum, et cetera, et cetera. So they talk about having mechanics in place which would allow Ireland and the people of Ireland to think in very real ways about what Irish unity might look like in the longer term. And that's also about responding, I guess, to many of the concerns and anxieties that the unionist community would have in Northern Ireland. Because, of course, the unionist community would not be supportive of the principle of, of Irish unification. So they do have... The, the emphasis really is on preparations and planning for the possibility of um, of a border poll. Um, and, and that has been the narrative which Sinn Féin has adopted in relation to this particular issue. But certainly it's something that the party is talking about and that other parties will probably necessarily have to respond to in some way. And so where does the kind of bulk of public sentiment lie on the issue of reunification because of unification I should say because Sinn Féin obviously that's a a clear part of their policy platform they received um, just over 24 percent of the vote but is this something that would appeal to very wide sections of the population in in the Republic of Ireland? Yeah I think there's two things to consider here and one is there would need to be two referendums on the island of Ireland Mm. there would need to be a referendum in Northern Ireland but there would also need to be a referendum in the Republic of Ireland and there are slight differences in terms of preferences. In Northern Ireland, it's a, it's a far more contested issue because the arguments and the contestation around Irish unity is, is very real and has formed part of Northern Ireland's very recent history. And in Northern Ireland, the numbers are certainly shifting and support for United Ireland does appear to be growing, but not to the point where there is currently a majority in favour of that prospect. In the Republic of Ireland, there is a much stronger aspiration to Irish unity felt by the Irish people. Um, But nevertheless, when you ask the question, although there may be majority support, it's a question which is being asked in a vacuum. It's a question which really doesn't get to the heart of what precisely Irish unity might involve 
whether that's in terms of taxation, for example, or changes to the health system, changes to the political system, changes to some of the symbols that attach to the Irish state. So asking the question does reveal quite interesting um, interesting trends in terms of the way in which people are moving more towards support for Irish unity. But nevertheless, I would caution a little bit about how we interpret those results because they are questions which are being asked without there being any real clarity as to what precisely a unified Ireland might look like. And in a way, um, that reflects on Britain's experience of the Brexit referendum. When people were asked a question which may, they may not necessarily have fully understood the implications of. I was just going to say that, that we know that years can pass and those questions still be asked if they're not resolved or outlined um, at the beginning when the questions are being um, being put to the, the population. Now what with regards to forming government in, in Ireland? Well, we're in a little bit of a stalemate at the moment. Um, the election figures fell in such a way that we have three political parties, Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, which are all on about 24-25% of the popular vote and which are within three seats of each other in terms of the number of seats that they've won in the parliament. And in essence, what's required is that two of those three parties need to come together and also gather a collection of independent members of parliament or smaller parties to reach that figure of 80, which is the figure that they need to form a government. Um, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are quite adamant right now that they do not want to share power with Sinn Féin. They have problems in relation, not just to Sinn Féin's policy flat platform, but they also have some principled problems with Sinn Féin as, as, as a political party and as a political unit. So the parties, to a certain extent, are talking to each other, but not all of them are talking to each other. And it looks like we're set for at least a few weeks of, um, of ambiguity, really, before parties are effectively either forced to come together or if they don't, we are looking at a second general election. And what does this mean for who might ultimately become, I hope I get the pronunciation right, the Taoiseach of Ireland, essentially the Prime Minister? I mean, if it is a power-sharing arrangement, and given those, um, the parties that won the most seats are only separated by three between them, is it possible that that could even be a role that's shared? Uh, there has been some suggestions that if two of the larger parties come together with support from others, that the compromise might be this idea of a rotating Taoiseach, a rotating prime minister. And we've never had that in Ireland before. So that really would be, that would be quite something. And it's unclear how it would even work. But, but nevertheless, that is something that's being, that's being tabled at the moment. And the lower house actually meets today for the first time since the general election. And there will be attempts to elect the Taoiseach. But no party leader will have sufficient support to emerge as the Taoiseach after today's sitting. Um, so this will this will rumble on for, for quite some time. And there may be some ideas uh, which become more real in relation to the idea of a rotate, rotating Taoiseach if we get to a point within the next few weeks where we really are facing um, 
a second general election. It's fascinating. And, and just finally, Mary, I mean, it sounds like political dynamics in Ireland have very much changed in the wake of this election. If there is a second general election, would you uh, guess that the results would kind of go more in the direction of Sinn Féin if they fielded more candidates? I mean, is this what's happened in the most recent election a sign that political dynamics have absolutely shifted in Ireland or could this be a bit of an aberration? It actually looks like um, this is part of a trend. Uh, we had uh, a poll yesterday, which I know we do need to treat with some caution, but nevertheless, uh, this poll suggested that in the event of a second election, Sinn Féin would win an even higher percentage of the vote and they would return an even higher number of, um, of representatives to Ireland's lower house. Uh, so it looks like Sinn Féin would make gains on the back of all that's happened in the last few weeks. People haven't been put off by by what's happening right now. And in fact, people have probably been antagonised by the way in which the two centre-right parties are refusing to talk to Sinn Féin about the possibility of creating a government. So uh, this looks to be part of a this looks to be part of a trend. And um, I imagine the two centre-right parties would be quite loath to go back to the voters within a short period of time because they are the ones who would um, who would be who would be feeling wounds in the event that that happened. Yeah, nothing like your seat being potentially lost to, to focus the mind on trying to make those negotiations work. Work, perhaps. Thanks so much for speaking with us today. It's been fantastic. Thank you. It's Mary C. Murphy, the Jean Monnet Chair in European Integration and Lecturer in Politics at University College Cork. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You might have heard last week that the ABC lost its case against the federal police who raided their Sydney headquarters and took files and other materials related to the reporting of two journalists. And many are concerned the ability for police to raid newsrooms is a dangerous new precedent. But the picture seems less clear cut than that. Last month, journalists at nine won the right to protect over 50 of their documents, sought in a defamation case brought by Special Air Services soldier Ben Robert Smith. So what is happening in Australia when it comes to our right to know? Uh, Gary Dixon is a research and project coordinator over at the Public Interest Journalism Initiative and he's um, looking at these and other issues to do with um, journalism and the rights of journalists and it's uh, great to have you back in at Triple R, Gary. Thanks for having me back. And I, I suppose um, maybe you can talk us through the two examples I just raised because they both raise really important questions and I suppose the results seem to be different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the decision last week um, in the ABC's challenge um, against the AFP in the federal court, the ABC was seeking to challenge the validity of the warrant that was used um, uh, to search their newsroom in June of last year. They were doing that on a, on a number of grounds, that the warrant was too broad, that some of the language wasn't quite appropriate um, for the warrant. But there were a couple of really interesting grounds that they tried to challenge on um, for our purposes. The first is that they tried to argue that searching a uh, newsroom is an inappropriate burden on um, the what's called the implied right to freedom of political communication, which is the constitutional protection for um, freedom of speech here in Australia. Or, you know, it's a very limited, but that's what we've got. Um, and they secondly tried to argue that 
Um, because of what's called the journalist's shield law, um, which is that a journalist can't be compelled by a court to give up um, the identities of their sources, that actually a search warrant that is used to achieve the same effect, to discover documents that would have that effect of, of identifying an anonymous source, uh, that it actually should be invalid on that basis as well. They were unsuccessful on both of those arguments, but that's what they attempted to do. And so as it stands, as, as I understand it, there exist Commonwealth laws that mean that a court can't compel a journalist to name their sources in a story, but there don't exist Commonwealth laws that uh, in the kind of search warrant scenario. Yeah, it's confined to the courts. That's absolutely correct. Um, and that was uh, Justice Abrams. Uh, that was her, in her findings. She found that... Um, what the ABC were arguing, actually, just it has no basis in, in Commonwealth law. It does in Victoria. Here in Victoria, the shield law applies to search warrants as well, but we're alone in the country in that. Uh, so under the Commonwealth legislation, the uh, federal police were well within their rights to do that. And so there's quite a few people, such as, you know, Peter Grester and prominent media spokespeople who have spoken out, uh, you know, cautioning against what this case means for journalistic freedoms and, and the protection of sources in Australia. What's your view on this case? I mean, does it set a, a danger, dangerous precedent for us at all or, or not? It's a, I suppose we need to tease out those two things, right? The first is to say that I absolutely agree with Peter Grester and everyone else who says that this is a um, it's it's a it's a very important thing to have happened, right? Um, I don't agree that it's a precedent though that it sets any kind of new precedent. Mm. I think that this is just perfectly in line with what we could probably have expected from the courts. Um, it's based on pretty solid um, case law up to this point. Um, it's obviously very important for the ABC and for um, Dan Oakes uh, in particular, but also Sam Clark and uh, and David McBride, who is charged. Uh, who's charged as, as their source um, for the Afghan files that they published. Um, but in terms of setting any kind of new precedent, I don't agree that it does that. And what about the other case um, with regards to the the documents that um, were being sought um, from the reporters at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age? So these are Nick McKenzie and Chris Masters, and the case um, is, is a defamation case um, brought by Special Air Services soldier Ben Robert Smith. Why is that different, that case? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one. Um, so... As part of the defamation case, uh, Robert Smith was seeking, uh, I think it's 49 documents, something in that area, um, from uh, Mackenzie and Masters that they asserted the, the shield law privilege over. They said that if we were to turn over these documents, they would identify our anonymous sources um, and we would sooner go to, go to jail than do that. Um, they've both said that uh, as, part of the, uh, as part of their in, uh, discussion with sources. Um, and so the judgment that came out in early December was whether or not the court was going to overturn the privilege that they had asserted on those documents and require them to release them to Ben Robert Smith. Um, the court decided not to. And, for a, and there's a really interesting um, piece of that decision, which is, I think, worth knowing. And to my mind, this is actually a precedent. I haven't seen this before, um, which is that so the journalist shield law privilege can be overturned by a court uh, and as part of making that decision, a judge is required to assess the potential damage that could be done, um, the harm to a source, the damage to the public interest, versus the broader public interest in the administration of justice, right? Um, and in order to do that, they're allowed to actually access those documents uh, so that they can have a read through and they can decide whether or not, um, uh, you know, what, what the potential harms could be. In this case, um, Justice Basanko actually decided uh, that he doesn't have the required expertise 
to make that decision. So McKenzie and Masters argued um, that they would, didn't want to turn over the documents even to the judge to make that assessment because he didn't, uh, he couldn't assess, he didn't know the, enough about the case in order to assess whether or not they would reveal a source. And he agreed with that. And he decided not to even take on those documents before deciding that they shouldn't be released. Well, is, is that something that's common in these types of cases? I've never heard of it before. Yeah, wow. It's, com- it's certainly common for judges to, uh, to access the documents and make that determination. I've never heard of a judge just accepting that, that they don't have the required expertise. So does that set a precedent or, or that, I mean, that other judges might follow suit or, or, or not? I would certainly think so. Um, the judge in that case, uh, he writes in his decision that um, the, the power to access those documents is certainly relevant for judges where they're looking at questions of legal privilege, where they may have the necessary professional background to assess what, uh, what harm could be done. But in the case of a journalist's privilege, he explicitly says, I don't see how I have the, um, the required background to make this assessment. So I would hope that that's a precedent going forward. Mm. And so what does the I mean to these two cases, I guess, um, along with the broader concerns around, you know, the, the raids, the AFP raids on Annika Smethurst, for example, and, and other issues around even whistleblower protections. I mean, this particular instance involving um, Ben Robert Smith suggests the law is kind of working to protect sources where a judge deems that they should absolutely be protected and that the balance falls on the side of the journalist in this case. What's your sense of, of the overall kind of, um, you know, mix of, of, of journalistic freedoms and source protections at this stage, given there are many concerns around where we're heading yeah i would i would say that the um decision in the in the robert smith case is probably a silver lining on some pretty gray clouds mm. um we've seen uh well meta, the metadata legislation compromises the ability of journalists to protect their sources we've had the introduction of the um, encryption breaking um legislation as well which compromises the ability of journalists to protect their sources um the shield laws don't work in every instance in fact they don't often work. They're they're um, they're pretty weak. They still aren't even shield laws in Queensland, um, so they're not even sort of nationally present. Um, it's a very big win and it's fantastic. Um, but in in the broader sense, I would say that uh, that that source protection is is still a, a big problem here in Australia, um, and requires I think journalists to take some very big risks with their own um, sort of personal security uh, in order to, to guarantee it, as we're seeing in the, in the Smethurst case uh, with, with uh, Oaks and Clark and, and Mackenzie and Masters as well. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I suppose it's the public right to know as much as anybody else's, but uh, what's your sense of the public mood that we want some of these laws, some of which were brought in, um, in you know, because of sort of concerns around terrorism and, and other global threats, uh, the sense that we want them to be wound back again? Or, I mean, what's your read? Um, my, my sense is that um, the public probably just doesn't think about this very much. Um, that, well, it's, it's probably always going to be a losing argument to say that journalists are a special class of people and therefore deserve a special class of, of uh, protection. Um, I may think that as someone who's kind of in the media journalism space, um, but I think for the public generally, they're rightfully skeptical of that argument. I think if we say that there's a lot of um, important public interest journalism that is not going to occur unless journalists are protected and unless sources are protected as well, I think that's probably a stronger case. 
um, and we could probably you know, make, a, make a better argument um, that some protections, some better protections are actually needed here. It's interesting. We had um, Bastian Obermeyer on the show last year who broke the, you know, the global Panama Papers um, story, a massive international story. And he was reflecting on the, particularly the AFP raids on the ABC and, and Annika Smithhurst and the like, and said if that happened in Germany, there would be people on the streets outraged, you know, at that level of intervention. Um, yet we have, I mean, we've seen concerns raised, but not that level of concern concern from from the Australian populace would you agree I would agree with that and um to stereotype Germany a little bit and that is to say I don't I don't know exactly but I get the sense that there's a greater sen- uh, a greater awareness of of um state authority and what the impact of, of um, misuse the misuse of state power can be in Germany mm. um certainly there's a much stronger um civil society sector around uh privacy issues and press freedom issues generally in Germany um, so it's, it certainly speaks to, I think, a, a stronger awareness among the population there uh, than we have here, absolutely. Gary Dixon's with us. He's Research and Project Coordinator at Public Interest Journalism Initiative. And uh, we're talking about a couple of really interesting cases where journalists' um, right to protect sources have been questioned. And I suppose we've gone through all the details there and I can't summarise them as well as you did. Um, so I won't try to. But I, I mean, it is an interesting day to be talking with you because... Um, Julian Assange is due to be, um, you know, I suppose the next step in whatever's happening to him and what um, uh, with regards to charges being brought from, from the US and extradition hearings and the like. And, I mean, that has got international headlines. Uh, what, you know, how do you see that case and, and its impact on, on journalism and freedoms? Yeah, there's a lot of... Um, so, the yeah, as you say, the um, Julian Assange, the first day of his uh, extradition hearing uh, to the US is, is supposed to happen today uh, in London. There's a lot of um, sort of, I think, misguided conversation around Julian Assange, um, certainly within the journalism sector, about whether or not he is actually a journalist and therefore whether or not any of this matters for the wider media sector. Um, as I say, I think that's misguided because I think at the end of the day, um, whatever happens to, to Julian Assange, the hacking charges that have been um, brought against him will absolutely have ramifications on the types of investigative journalism um, that everyone else is doing. If you look at the charges that he's facing, uh, which are things like the receipt of stolen documents, working with a source to um, uh, to take more documents, um, helping a source cover their tracks, um, it's, it's all things that are just standard investigative journalistic practice. Um, the idea that this is going to be limited to one very controversial figure I think is, is, is nonsense. Yeah, and it's, it's a very stuff of um, investigative journalism, isn't it, to handle that sort of very sensitive information and communicate it to the public if it is in the public's interest to know that information. Um, and that's, I think, where the, the real unease is around the, um, you know, Dan Oaks and the ABC reporters who have been um, raided by the ABC, also in the sort of Witness K spying scandal as well. Um at this stage in Australia, we're awaiting the report of a parliamentary press freedom inquiry, which I think is a little bit late. It's due sometime earlier this year. Do you have much of a sense of what we might learn from that? Um, I don't, to be honest. Um, we, so we're actually waiting on two. Um, one of them is due to report, I think, on February, no, March the 16th. Mm. Um, and then the other one just has an unspecified early 2020 um, release date. Um, the one that's due to report quite shortly um, is the um, Senate's press freedom inquiry, and they've been very tightly focused on source protection. Um, I went and um, and gave evidence at that, um, and they 
very narrowly focused on the source protection parts of our submission. They weren't engaged in any way on, on national security questions, so I suspect that they're going to avoid that completely. It's probably worth noting that that um, inquiry is being chaired by Senator Hanson Young, um, who uh, this past week announced that the Greens are going to support a Media Freedom Act, which probably gives us some sense of the direction that that particular inquiry is going to go. The other inquiry is um, in the parliamentary uh, Committee on Intelligence and Security. They are much more focused on the impact of national security law on press freedom. I am very skeptical that much is going to come out of that particular um, that particular inquiry. They look at press freedom issues all the time. Um, almost every time national security legislation is introduced, it ends up going to that committee to be reviewed against press freedom. Um, and uh, their recommendations are usually pretty weak, so I wouldn't expect too much there. I imagine it's hard. I mean, we, we do hear with regards to when new laws come in or, or some of these um, laws are expanded um, that, that you referred to earlier and that I've raised with regards to what came in after, you know, concerns around terrorism and data retention and all these sorts of things. How do we know if it is having a chilling effect on people coming forward? Because if people don't come forward, we don't know that they were going to, yeah. do we? So how do we actually measure what, I suppose, intuitively um, journalists are concerned and other people that care about these issues are concerned is happening already? Yeah, it was a, um, that was a, uh, one of the questions that um, Justice Abraham actually raised in the judgment um, in the ABC case um, was that it's very hard to demonstrate what a chilling effect actually is. Um, Gavin Morris, who's the news director of the ABC, uh, he has said that they've had sources pull out of investigations um, that they that were already underway, so that seems to be some kind of indication. Um, investigative journalists, this question uh, gets surveyed every couple of years by the Pew Research Centre, um, and they have been uh, tracking a sort of decline of availability, especially of official sources that, um, not just in Australia but around the West, um, people within the public service, people who would otherwise be expected to speak are actually not doing that anymore. So there is some kind of uh, drying up of, of sources in, in public institutions. Um, but you're absolutely right. We're kind of trying to prove the evidence of absence and that's a, always a very difficult thing to do. It must be hard, but I know, I mean, we've, we've seen on, you know, television um, news uh, conversations where people holding up redacted pieces of paper from FOI requests and, and some of it's ridiculous, like almost everything except for deer have been, you know, has been redacted. So I suppose that might be um, some evidence that, that the FOI is becoming more difficult um, to access and also what's coming out of requests is, is less useful. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, I mean, one of the things that just wasn't foreseen when the um, FOI legislation was first um, implemented um, was this concept of commercial incompetence or commercially sensitive information. Um, you can go back and read the discussions around the introduction of FOI legislation through the 80s, and people just weren't expecting that entire segments of the government would be outsourced to private companies and therefore not actually be subject to FOI legislation at all anymore. So on top of all of the other problems of resourcing that that legislation has, there's actually this other piece which is just... It's, it's overwhelming the ability of people to access information. Mm. And as well as working at the Public Interest Journalism Initiative, you also um, set up Free Press Watch, which we spoke about last time you were on the show, and that's kind of a, a monitor for, um, for for monitoring press freedom violations in Australia. How's that all going? Are you still actively working on that and, and seeking information about 
instances where journalists are intimidated or have their freedom impinged upon? I am. I am still actively working on that. Um, happily, if you look at the site, there have not been uh, too many updates since late last year. Good news. Which is, yeah, that is good news. <laughs> it's been lots of going back over old incidents and updating them um, as, as, you know, cases progress and that sort of thing. Um, I will say it's... Um, it has been a very valuable resource even just for myself. Um, there are things like um, the when the, uh, a group of French journalists were arrested outside of an Adani um, property up in Queensland um, or when the Cameroonian journalist Mimi Mefo was denied entry into Australia. These sorts of stories that um, are, I think, they're very big for a couple of days and then sort of fade into public, um, the, the, the sort of recesses of public awareness. Um those are the sorts of things that I myself would have totally forgotten um, within a couple of weeks of just a few years ago. And having this as a, as a resource, even just for myself, I'm able to go back and look at it and, and it's still at the forefront of my mind. So hopefully it's having the same effect for others. Thanks very much for coming in. Um, it's great to have you back on Triple R, Gary Dixon's Research and Project Coordinator over at Public Interest Journalism Initiative. And you can um, check that out online if you want to chase up any of the things we've been speaking about this morning or, or um, also free press watch. Uh, you can go and check out um, what Gary is tracking there. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.